the name Micah means who is like Jehovah, who is like the Lord. And it's interesting because at the end of this book, Micah will ask God that question, sort of a play on words of his name. He'll say, Lord, who is like unto you, O Lord? Who is like the Lord, our Lord, who's abundant in mercy? The time at which Micah is writing this prophecy was a time of prosperity outwardly for the nation. Under King Hezekiah, which is one of the kings we read about in the first verse of this book he prophesied under, was a time of the expansion of the kingdom, a time of the rededication of the temple. And at the same time, though Hezekiah tried to reform, tried to revive the people, his own heart was touched. He could not rid the country entirely of idolatry. You know, it's tough when God touches your heart, God saves you, and you want to see everyone in your family and on your block and everyone that you come in contact with, you want them to know the same truth. And it's so frustrating when you try to share it with them, but they won't change. And they don't understand, or they patch on that and go, well, that's nice for you. I was certain that after I came to know Christ, when I left the San Francisco area and came back down to my family in Southern Cal, that they would all rejoice at the decision I'd made and they would see that a revolution has occurred in my life and they'd follow suit. I was in for a big surprise. My friends said, you're an idiot. My family patted me on the back and said, you've always been a nice little Christian boy. I thought, boy, they didn't know me very well. And there wasn't that enthusiasm. There wasn't that turning. It was burning in my heart to see other people come to the knowledge of the truth. And some of you may be here tonight because you're invited by friends or relatives. And they've just kept bugging you. Hey, come to church, man. Come to church. You finally say, all right. I'll come to church. Then don't bother me. And you wonder, why do they keep sharing with me all the time and telling me? Because they love you. A revolution has occurred in their lives. A revival has occurred. God has touched them, given the meaning and purpose. And they love you enough to be honest with you and to invite you. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. They know you. They see you. They want to see you fulfilled. Hence, they know the only way of that is coming to Christ. Though Hezekiah had been touched, the nation wasn't touched. Though prosperity was outward, yet the nation became more and more corrupt. Principally, two cities. And that sort of becomes a theme of the book of Micah. Two cities are addressed by Micah. The capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, the city of Samaria. And Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah where traditionally the center of their worship began and was maintained. Both of those cities had become corrupted. The leadership had become corrupted. The government stunk or stank. I don't know actually the right way to phrase that, but anyway, they were off base. And God raised up this man from Moresheth in Judah to go to both of these capitals and pronounce God's mercy and at the same time God's judgment, which was a strange mixture. It still is. God is full of mercy. It's a good thing, isn't it? Oh, how we need it. Oh, how we use it. But I use so much of God's mercy. And I am so grateful, the scripture says, that his mercies are new every morning. His compassions fail not. God is merciful, and yet God performs what theologians call God's strange work that of judgment. There comes a time when he steps in and he said, you know, look, at mercy is enough. I've waited long enough. Now it's time for me to, to pull the rug out from under you and judge you so that you will turn back to me and when you do, then I will extend my mercy to you. Judgment was performed with God's mercy in mind. God wanted to show them mercy, but they wouldn't receive it. So God says, okay, fine, I'll judge you. And when you're in captivity, when you've been spanked, you'll start crying. And when you cry out to me, it's then I'll receive you back in my mercy. I hate to spank my son. I hate it. And there are times when I have to promise that I'll spank him if he crosses a line. 
Now, when I do that, in my mind, I'm praying, God, please help him to be obedient because I just don't want to have to follow through with his promise. I never threaten him. At least I try not to. I never say, Nathan, stop it. Nathan, stop it. Nathan, stop it. You know, and just because and just, then he'll know how to manipulate. I'll just give him a firm promise. Nathan, do it again. You get spanked. If he does it again, I hate it because now I have to follow through with my promise. I know if I don't, it will be worse for him. He'll know that dad makes idle threats. And I can, you know, keep doing this four, five, six times until he just blows a fuse. Then he'll finally, you know, do something about it. I'd rather show mercy to him, but there comes a time when the spanking is necessary because when it's a firm, hard swat, and the Bible admonishes parents to lovingly discipline their children. But I know that, first of all, if I don't, I'll spoil the child if I spare the rod. And, and Solomon says, you know, spank him. You're not going to kill him. He'll hate me at maybe for a few moments, but when he grows up, it'll be different. So I think of the long term. But when it's a good, firm swat, there's tears in his eyes, and he always comes and wants to hug me tightly and want me to comfort him and affirm my love for him. And then usually I'll treat him to something special. I'll extend my grace and my mercy to him. But the judgment is so that he will come into the arms of my love and my mercy. And God does that, and that's the message of Micah throughout this book. We've covered the first three chapters, which are denunciatory, principally. Chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 are consolatory. It's sort of like the Jewish day. You know, the Jewish day does not begin in the morning. It begins at night. When the sun goes down, you see the first three stars in the sky. That's the beginning of the Jewish day. It always begins in darkness. And after darkness comes light. Micah begins like that. The sun has set. Judgment is promised. And yet the last part of the book is consolatory. The light shines in the midst of the darkness. Um, I lost my place. Chapter 4 begins of the Lord's reign in Jerusalem in the end times. Um, talks about, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Uh, just to pick up from where we left off, there are several things that we've already capped and we'll just touch on them lightly tonight. The sins for which God judged the nation of Israel in the north and Judah in the south was covetousness, number one. They wanted more land than they had. They couldn't settle for what they, the lot God had given them, and so they uh, coveted other people's property, other people's lands. They were obstinate. They didn't want to receive the truth of God. They wanted to hear nice, sweet things, be patted on the back, but they wouldn't listen to God's prophets. And the leadership had become corrupt both in government and spiritually, because the people wanted to hear nice things, positive things. Prophets came who followed suit. They were paid preachers only. You pay them to say, peace, peace, God will prosper you, they'd say it. They wouldn't speak the truth because people wouldn't like the message. God's flock has always suffered from two dangers, wolves on the outside and false shepherds from the inside. When Paul sailed to Miletus, he asked for a special meeting of the elders of Ephesus. He said, I want you to know that I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, and now I commend you to the grace of God. But I know that after my departure, savage wolves will arise among you and come in, not sparing the flock. That's the first danger, wolves from the outside to attack and destroy God's sheep. Then, in the next verse, he said, And from among yourselves, men will arise and draw after themselves disciples, the disciples from among you, to follow themselves. I collect, I don't know why I do it, I collect because I'm always in awe. I collect gimmicks from some of the radio and television preachers and evangelists. I'm always in awe because of the flaky new things they come up with to solicit people's money. 
And I'm always in awe that there are gullible, naive people that will send for it. I have everything from prayer cloths to anointing oils to grains of sand from different parts of the world to even a shower cap with the imprint of the evangelist's hand on it so that you put it on your head and it's like he's laying his hands upon your head. <laughs> I've got a copy of it in my files. And the idea with all of these gimmicks is that you take and believe God, this is your um, uh, point of contact. You send in your seed faith gift. And you sow large, brother. Because if you sow large, you'll reap largely. Sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. So basically saying, send, send me big bucks by faith. And as you prosper me, God will prosper you. It's the old Reverend Ike theology, revived, and it goes on and on and on. And then there's always those who speak about God as if he's totally broke, that he doesn't have any kind of way to maintain his work. And by listening to some of them, you get the idea, poor God, he's homeless. <laughs> he's not big enough to take care of himself. The work of God is depending on you. You've got to send in your gift this week or God's work won't continue. And how would you feel if God's work didn't continue because of your unfaithfulness? And if you don't send your money in, and I'm believing God that you will, if you don't, then this work will fold. Every time I hear it, something like that, I deliberately withhold money. I think, good, let it fold. Let another scam leave. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God is able to take care of himself. He will use his people. But to depict God as someone who's begging and not able to take care of it. No, I don't support God. No, God supports me. God is able to continue his work. And I feel, Lord, look, this is your work. If you want it to go you'll supply the need. If you don't want it to go, you'll dry it up. If you dry it up, fine. I'm not going to keep going what you want to dry up. Maybe you have something else to do, some other work. I want to be sensitive. I don't want to program your future. There were those in Israel's time. There always has been, in the New Testament times. And so judgment came in chapter 3. The wicked rulers and prophets are spoken about. Now, chapter 4 takes a whole new twist, though throughout the rest of this book, he will kind of go back from this consolatory note. He'll lapse back into speaking how that Israel has sinned, the leaders have sinned, the prophets have sinned, and God will judge. But the good part comes. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths, for out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I can't wait till the kingdom age. Right now we see through a glass darkly. We attend Bible studies. We hear the exposition of Scripture. We read it on our own. We pray. We worship. We try to get in touch with God and to experience His presence, feel His presence and power. But there's going to come a time when all restrictions and limitations will be done away with. And you'll see Him face to face. And in the kingdom age, wherever you happen to be, wherever you happen to be hanging out, you might be here, you might be hanging out in Hawaii or the Bahamas, and you think, hey, man, Let's go to Jerusalem and spend just maybe four, five, six thousand years just listening to the word of the Lord as he expounds it in Jerusalem. Let's sit at his feet as the word goes forth from Mount Zion. It's going to be so wonderful when the kingdom age comes, when a dictator will arise, a benevolent dictator. Jesus Christ will rule and reign and will rule and reign with him. The government will be like it should. And people won't be able to vote Jesus out of office. They won't want to. It'll be so awesome. 
And even if they tried to, so what? He created it. He's in charge, man. At this time, it's going to run the way he intended it to run. Now, this verse, this passage that we've been reading, might sound very familiar to you because it's also spoken of the same almost exact passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah, and there's been a long-standing argument as to who copied who. Did Isaiah copy Micah, or did Micah look over Isaiah's shoulder and go, I like that, let me use that in my book. The best explanation is not to argue about it, but to simply say the Holy Spirit was the governing author in both cases, and this was important enough that God wanted it to be shared twice. And anytime God writes something twice, you better listen to it. It's a glorious promise. It speaks now about the last days, a technical phrase in the Old Testament that speaks of the tribulation period, the time in which Israel will go through a time of suffering, the return of the Messiah, and the kingdom age set up. That's the last days in a technical sense. So Micah goes beyond the Babylonian captivity, beyond Shalmaneser and Shennacherib's invasion of Israel and Judah, and speaks of the kingdom age now, the kingdom being set up. That the, uh, verse 1, The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Um, mountain in Scripture is spoken about in two ways, figurative and literal. And I think it's used in both cases here. Figuratively, a mountain in Scripture means a kingdom or a power. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar had that wild vision? He called all of his wise guys in the kingdom to interpret the vision to him, and they couldn't do it. He said, first tell us the dream, and then we'll tell you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar said, too easy, guys. Tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation. And Daniel gave him the vision and the interpretation. He said, King, you were asleep on your bed and you were wondering what will happen in the last days. And you saw in your mind's eye a great image made of gold, silver, brass, iron, and feet of iron and clay. As you were watching this thing, which speaks of a succession of kingdoms, O King, you saw a stone, not cut with human hands, coming from heaven, striking the image, and the gold, the silver, the brass, the iron, and the clay became as chaff on the summer threshing floor, and it blew away, and all that was left was the stone, and the stone grew into a huge mountain that filled the entire earth. And he says, this depicts that in the days of the ten kings at the end times, the Lord God of heaven will establish his kingdom that will never end. So the mountain was figurative of a kingdom. But Mount Zion is a geographical location, and it's also to be taken literally. The law will go forth out of Mount Zion. Mount Zion is another term for the Old Testament, Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, where King David wanted to build a temple. Solomon did build a temple. Sacrifices went on there constantly in the Jewish nation. Today there is no temple. In the future there will be a temple. The Antichrist will establish it. But in the end, Jesus Christ will rule and reign. There will be no temple uh, in heaven, but Jesus Christ will rule and reign geographically from Mount Zion. It will be exalted above all the hills. And many people, this is interesting, shall flow to it. Many nations shall come. The word flow in Hebrew means a spontaneous movement from the heart. It means people will want to go of their own accord to Israel. You know, you don't get a whole lot of people that want to go to Israel today. <laughs> A few crazy Christians, a few of us like to go over there. But some of you here, say, oh, I don't want to go to Israel, man, it's too dangerous. And yet you'll go to New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles, which is statistically more dangerous. I can't figure that one out still. But there'll come a time when there'll be peace in the Middle East and people say, let's go to Israel. Now the only advantage some of us will have is we saw it before. You know, you get the pictures before and after. We'll remember what it was like before, and we'll say, man, I remember, remember when that hotel was there? Look at it, man, Jesus put his foot on the Mount of Olives, and that hotel, the Intercontinental, just shattered it. And we'll see it before and after. Many nations will say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Verse 3, he will judge between many peoples. 
rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Man, I can't wait. No violence. No war. No United Nations. Praise the Lord. Not that they've done a whole lot of good anyway. There is a motto written over the United Nations. Guess what it says? And they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. So they quote this scripture. And yet that's the wrong motto over the United Nations because they've done everything but that. War after war after war without peace. Most of world history has been in war, not in peace. Nations have been birthed out of conflict, not out of peace. Now there will come a time when there will be no weapons. Until then, this scripture does not find its fulfillment presently. Now all of us who want peace would love if we could just cut back our tax dollars. You know, no armament, man. Don't spend any more money for defense. But folks, my view is this. We live in a big, bad, wicked world. And until Jesus comes, keep your ammo dry. Lock your car. Lock your home. Wouldn't it be great if you wouldn't have to lock your house? Lock? And I used to think, oh, hey, I won't lock my home. I got ripped off. People have been ripped off in the church parking lot. Jesus said, a man that is well armed keeps his possessions secure at home. I'm not saying go out and buy M16s and, you know, keep them cocked. And, but use sense. It'd be great to say, oh, we'll just, you know, strip all of the weapons from, the, from the, our country. No way. That's unrealistic. It's taking a too optimistic view of the sinful nature of man. There needs to be a defense until that time. But I can't wait till Jesus comes back and there will be no weaponry. There will be no need. And there will be peace. And it speaks of the prosperity in verses 4 and 5. Everyone will sit under his vine and fig tree. In other words, you'll have all that you need at home. No one will make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast, those whom I have afflicted. Speaking of Israel. Interesting, God takes the rap for the captivity. Though their sin caused it, God said, I have afflicted you. He judged Israel by using Babylon and Assyria so that they would turn back to him. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem will be restored to what God originally intended, the former glory under King David and Solomon. And even more than that will be achieved. You know, God promised the nation of Israel that they would inhabit 300,000 square miles of land. At her zenith, she only occupied 30,000 square miles, one-tenth of all that God promised. She has yet to occupy all that God has promised her in terms of land allotment. God will restore the former glory. There's an interesting word in verse 7. More than just interesting, it's important that you recognize the word remnant. You might skip over it, but it's an important term in the Old Testament. Remnant. Never in Israel's history did 100% of the nation follow after the Lord faithfully. There was only a remnant. Not all of Israel passed through the wilderness into the promised land. Only a remnant. In fact, the original generation, almost all of them, kicked the bucket in the desert. Their kids entered the land. There was a remnant. When the children of Israel returned from Babylon after the captivity, a very small 
group of people, only 50,000 of all the hundreds of thousands, came back to Jerusalem. Most of them were content to stay in Babylon. During the time of Elijah the prophet, there was only a remnant. Remember, Elijah complains to God. He said, God, I'm the only prophet left. Nobody's as faithful as I am. I notice a lot of Christians say those kinds of things. I'm the only true believer left, God. I'm the, really the only one you can kind of look at the church. They're not as involved as I am. And God said, Elijah, I have reserved for myself 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But it was a small remnant of all the people of Israel, only 7,000 who were faithful. I think the same could be said in the church today. We may be utterly shocked if we could get a true picture of the average modern church congregation. The Lord knows those who are His, and there are tares among the wheat. Not everyone who comes to church and carries a Bible and says, praise the Lord, is a true believer. Now, we don't know who they are. God does, though you can identify mostly by the fruit. There is a remnant. Jesus gave, I think, a very accurate picture in Matthew 13 when he gave a parable of the sower and the seed. He said, the Son of Man sows the Word of God, which is the seed. Some of it falls on rocky ground. People hear it. They don't receive it. They just blow it off. There's people who week after week hear messages and it just bounces off. And they don't doesn't receive in their heart. They just, yeah, okay, great, boom, they're out of there. Jesus said, some hear the word of God and receive it with great emotional joy. And they last for a small period of time. But when tribulation or persecution arises, when it gets a little tough to be a Christian, they say, I'm going to take my marbles and go home. They quit. Then there are those, Jesus said, who receive the word of God, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of other things choke the seed and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus said, then there are those who hear the word of God and it's like seed that is sown upon good soil and they bear forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. That's probably the average church congregation. Some get all excited and go, all right, it's going to be great. I'll follow the Lord. But you don't see them in the long haul. Things get a little tough. They go, I'm not going to follow you anymore. Or they get so cared about their prosperity, their little world, their future, that God takes second and third place. He's not number one anymore. They leave their first love. And though they are unaware of it instantly, slowly but surely, the word of God gets choked out. But then there are those who continually bear fruit, some 30, some 60, 100 fold, good soil. They bring forth fruit, Jesus said, with endurance. They hang in there. They're a remnant. God knows tonight in this meeting who are his, who the remnant is, who are truly following him. I'm not so naive to think that every crowd of people that comes to hear a message, that every Sunday morning the church is jam-packed, full of on-fire, bearing fruit believers, only God knows. There's a remnant. Food for thought. Verse 9, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? This is a prophetic look into the future. As Israel would go into captivity, she would have no king. She would have no counselor. Zedekiah, because Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah's kids and killed them all in front of his face and then put out, his own, put out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last remaining memory was of his children dying, his sons dying. They had no king. They went into captivity. For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. I can't speak from personal experience, but giving birth is awfully painful. I can only speak by observation. Half of the human race knows what it's like. The other half has no idea. They just observe. I happen to be part of that half. 
I watched my wife go through birth pains. I watched as she began to grow and her stomach got larger and larger and I felt as that baby kicked. I was so excited. But then I remember the night when the pains became more intense and more frequent. The doctor said, time these things. When they're every five minutes, give me a buzz. And I remember when they were every five minutes, and I thought, this is it. They started. And she went into labor, and I took her to the hospital. And I watched as she continued to have labor pains until a certain strategic time that the doctors, interestingly enough, call transition. And I found out why they call it transition. Transition, if you look it up in the dictionary, means a radical change. Oh, what a perfect description of that phase. It was like she was a different person altogether. The pain was so intense that she wasn't herself. She yelled at the nurses. She yelled at me. She yelled at the doctor. The doctor was so nice and sweet. Obviously, he'd heard these things before, but he said, Well, you think it's so easy? You get on here and try this, doctor. And then at one point, you know, I was just saying, breathe, breathe, breathe. And she just belted me as hard as she could. <laughs> Shut up, she said. <laughs> it is a transition. <laughs> and so when that happened, I figured, man, the, this pain must be so intense. It could only be for a short period of time. Because a woman undergoing this for a long period of time, it would kill her, literally. It's got to be the worst pain I've ever, I've ever seen. And so is the judgment of God. It is like the pangs of a woman. Jesus said that things would happen in the last days that would indicate the time is near. There would be great tribulation, famine, distress. It would be like the birth pangs of a woman, more frequent, more intense. But Jesus said... Unless those days were shortened, there would no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Good thing. There will be a period of tribulation. There will be a period of transition. Three and a half years. The worst judgment that has ever befallen humanity. Jesus said, nothing is like it. You can't compare history to it. You can't compare anything like it. It'll be the worst. It will be a period of transition. But... I noticed also that after that period of transition came incredible joy. It wasn't just all pain. Nathan was delivered. And he's been a source of joy to us ever since. And so will the judgment, the tribulation, at the end bring forth a glorious joy for the whole world. Let's read on. After the captivity is predicted, it says, There you will be delivered. The Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In the end there will be joy. Now also, many nations have gathered against you. You know, as you read prophecy, it gets a little confusing because the prophet often jumps, takes the liberty to jump through historical period. He goes now beyond the Babylonian captivity, looks way into the future during a time of the tribulation called Armageddon because this was not fulfilled historically. Many nations gathered together against Jerusalem. Joel chapter 3 says that. Zechariah 12 and 14 speak of the same thing. Revelation 16, the nations gathered at the field of Armageddon against the nation of Israel. Who will say, let her be defiled. Let our eye look upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like the sheaves to the threshing floor. In other words, they are coming blindly. God will punish them as they come against Israel. And then it's, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I'll give you the power to recover and to uh, be victorious. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of the troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, there's a problem with translations of the Bible, and probably every English translation has this problem. In the Hebrew text, 
chapter 1, or chapter 5, verse 1 in Hebrew is the last verse of chapter 4. And chapter 5 begins with verse 2. That's the way it belongs. There's not really a break here. The last uh, thought of chapter 4 is chapter 5, verse 1. Speaking again of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And uh, it says, He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod in the cheek. I believe that this is speaking of an attack on the royal lineage of David. The kings of Judah came from the line of King David. Toward the end of the kingdom, Jehoiachin was on the throne. He was of the uh, dynasty of David. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar took him into captivity and put Jehoiakim upon the throne. He rebelled, sent him into captivity. He put Zedekiah on the throne. Zedekiah rebelled. Nebuchadnezzar got angry, said, forget the captivity. I'll just kill his sons and put his eyes out. At that point, the royal lineage of David, it had already been cursed under Jeconiah, but now it has ceased. And one would ask this question, how will the promise that God made to David be fulfilled? That from his loins, one will sit upon the throne who will rule forever and ever in Jerusalem. The dynasty has been collapsed. The kings have gone into captivity. The lineage has ceased. Now we get into this shift. And verse 2 answers that question. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. On the wings of the promise of the captivity and the end of the Davidic dynasty comes a promise that someone will come the Messiah born in Bethlehem. And by the way, the rabbis, the Jewish scholars, have always believed this verse to refer to the Messiah, even during Jesus' time. The wise men came and said to Herod's uh, scribes and priests, hey, we've seen the star and we followed it over here. Where is the birthplace? And they said, well, according to the prophet, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And they quoted Micah 5 too. Now look at this promise with me closely. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata. There were two Bethlehems, one in the north, one in the south. Ephrata was down in Judah, about six, five and a half, six miles from Jerusalem. It's not far. You, could, you can actually see it. If you have a good view of a hotel room in Jerusalem, you can look down and see Bethlehem. Um, I bicycled to Bethlehem and back from Jerusalem uh, when I was over there. One time. It's not far. It's a small town, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, even from everlasting. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet describes the birthplace of the Messiah. The lineage of David will be collapsed, but born in Bethlehem will come forth, out of Bethlehem, come forth to me, God says, the one to be ruler in Israel. And then he is described and you have to agree that his description doesn't fit any human being. Any other king. No one could fit this description. Whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. It's interesting how God fulfilled this promise. You know, years ago, and every now and then I run into one, a guy came into our fellowship when we were in the other building. It was during one of our cult awareness seminars. We had Walter Martin giving a seminar on cults. And after the meeting, a young Christian girl comes up to me and she says, Skip, you've got to come quickly. A guy says he's the Messiah. And he's talking to some of the people. I said, oh, I'd like to meet this guy. So I went over to him and said, i like, how are you doing? I'm Skip. He goes, oh, I know who you are. I am the Messiah. <laughs> I said, let me ask you a question. Anything. Where were you born? I think he said Cincinnati. I said, you ain't my Messiah. Wrong answer, man. The Bible predicts the Messiah, the one who will be the ruler in Israel, 
who is brought forth unto God, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, will be born in Bethlehem. The prophets have said that. The, time, the people at the time of Jesus understood that. And so for someone to be the Messiah, they have to fit the qualifications. One of the qualifications is you have to be born in Bethlehem. Now, how many people do you know personally were born in Bethlehem? There's not many people that have been born in that little village. And once you find all of the males who have been born in Bethlehem, find one from the lineage of David. Has to be direct descendant of King David, born in Bethlehem. Then he has to fit the other qualifications. He has to be betrayed by 30, for 30 pieces of silver. He has to die between two criminals. And on and on the list goes, the qualifications for the Messiah. So I went down and I started asking these questions. This guy that I talked to didn't fulfill any of them. I just said, man, you are a false prophet. Oh, I know, many have said that, but they don't, you know, on and on and on. So I just said, buddy, take a hike. And don't ever show your face here again. You're a wolf. You're a false Christ. Now the description of this person is in this verse. He won't be just a man. His goings forth have been of old, even from everlasting. Jesus Christ emptied himself and became a man. There's a term. I don't care if you remember it, but there's certain things I want you to remember about Jesus. Theologically, he is called the theanthropic son of God meaning he is fully God and at the same time fully man. He's not half God, half man. He was God. When he was a baby, that little baby in that cradle could have spoken the world out of existence. He was fully God. Yet he was fully man. He emptied himself, not of deity, folks, but of the prerogatives of deity. And that is where Kenneth Copeland and even Paul Crouch have gone in desperate error saying that Jesus Christ emptied himself of his deity upon the earth. Baloney! He was God in human flesh. He emptied himself of the prerogatives of deity. He became a man in the likeness of sinful flesh. But his goings forth were of old, even from everlasting. He was speaking in John chapter 8 to some of the Jewish leaders. He said, you know what? Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And he was glad. And they said, man, you're not even 50 years old. What do you mean Abraham rejoiced to see your day? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones to, to stone him because he being a man was making himself God, claiming everlasting existence. Isaiah bore witness to this. He said, this shall be a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. And call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A couple chapters later, God through the prophet Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, and the names of humanity and deity. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David to order it in establishment in judgment and justice from this time forth even forevermore. His going forth were from everlasting. The Messiah prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth and the remnant of the brethren shall return to the children of Israel and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall abide for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. These verses speak of an interval between his rejection when he came the first time and when he comes in glory the second time. Jesus said, you will not see me here again until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verses six and, uh, the, verses 5 and 6 says, uh, when the Assyrian comes into our land, when he treads in our palaces... Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod and its entrances. Uh, he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, when he treads within our borders. Several interpretations of this, one being the Assyrian speaks of the Antichrist in the future. 
Number two, the Assyrian speaks of Israel's enemy generally, and it's a conglomeration of all the nations coming against Israel, with Iraq and Iran kind of heading it in the last days. We don't know. All we know is that Assyria was brutal during Micah's time. Archaeological records show, as we've discussed in the book of uh, Jonah, how that there were Assyrian kings around Nineveh who took and decapitated the skulls, the heads of their victims, dried out the flesh, ripped the skinned them alive first, cut off their heads, and put their skulls in piles outside the entrances to the cities. Cut off their lips, noses, uh, uh, ears, and put them in piles, kind of as a, a sign that says, do not mess with me, or this is what will happen to you. A brutal group. Assyria was seen as an arch enemy. Jonah knew that. So it could be that it's speaking of Israel's enemy in general, perhaps all the nations coming against Israel in the last days. Um, let's scoot down to verse 10. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all of your strongholds. In other words, God will remove all the things Israel has leaned on for support. Now we're in chapter 6. You love chapter 6. Whether you know it or not, one of your favorite verses, one of the most often quoted verses is in chapter 6. And before we get to it, before we get to the key verse of this chapter, we need to go back and begin from the beginning and go through it. God is like a prosecuting attorney in this chapter. He calls for a courtroom session. He calls upon all the nations of the world. Puts his gavel down. He says, okay, guys, court in order. Let all the nations gather around and listen to this. And he brings a question before Israel. He said, let me ask you a question while all of the world is watching. What did I ever do to you? What have I ever done that caused you to turn from me? Let's look at this language. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. <laughs> I would hate to have God complain against me. I like to be on his good side. I like to be on the side of his mercy, not on the side where God is forced to complain and to judge, to discipline. Though I've been disciplined many times by the Lord as a sign of His love, I don't enjoy it. I don't like God's discipline. I'd rather learn quickly and be on His good side. When God says, I have a complaint and a contention against my people, look out. And so He draws the scenario. Here is God's chosen people, a covenant people, a people God has established who have left the covenant, who have left their first love. And God brings this indictment against them. They've lost their greatness. I think there are many parallels between ancient Israel and the United States. I've often seen that in the scripture. This nation has been blessed by God. Really has been. The early history of this nation is fabulous reading. And I suggest that you read some Christian perspectives of the beginnings of this nation. Now, you won't get it in secular history much, but read some good Christian literature of the history of this nation. It was a nation founded under God for the worship of God, the freedom to worship God. Now, people today mock people like the Puritans, but they had such a love and a devotion for God. And yet we have left that purity in the name of liberality, in the name of freedom. Read the capstones of Yale, Harvard, Dartmouth, Amherst, some of the great eastern seaboard colleges that were founded for one purpose and one purpose only, to train men and women to evangelize the eastern seaboard and to plant churches. Now go to those places. You'd doubt that history even existed. A nation that has strayed and left God. Verse 3, O oh my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. 
For I brought you from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Miriam. I gave you good leaders. I took you out of bondage. O my people, remember now what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Look back at your own history. Remember, I loved you. You were slaves. I gave you a land. While you were coming into the land, you couldn't go through Edom. The king of Edom wouldn't allow you, so you went through Moab. The king of Moab was Balak. He hired Balaam as a prophet, remember the son of Beor, to come and curse the children of Israel. Balaam, looking over the camp of Israel, said, Hey, Balak, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? And he began to give Israel beautiful blessing. And Balak was angry. How can you bless these people? Man, I'm giving you money to curse them. So he took him to another mountain. He said, Now look at him. Curse him from here. How can I curse whom the Lord has not cursed? And he blessed them. Finally, Balaam said, I can't curse them, but they can curse themselves. Send your young women into the camp with their little idols and have them seduce sexually the men into immorality, which is part of your false worship system, Balak. And during that sexual immorality, they can bring out their little images and they can provoke God to anger by their idolatry through sex. And it worked. They brought upon themselves the judgment of God because they strayed from the covenant. But God was protecting them by not allowing Balaam to curse them. That's his point. With what shall I come before the Lord? Verse 6, and bow myself before the high God. Now four questions are asked. And these are questions that everyone who worships any kind of God always asks. How can I approach my God? What can I do that is pleasing before him? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's always man's reasoning, isn't it? What can I do that God would be pleased? What ritual can I perform? What activity will merit God's love and favor? Should I crawl on my knees and bloody them to some shrine? Should I go through a continual sacrifice and a stiff ritual? Will that please God? That's man's reasoning. I've got to do something to make me pleasing before God. 10,000 rivers of oil, is that what it takes? Now, God did command sacrifices in the Old Testament, but with the right heart. Now, verse 8 is the answer. Basically, God's saying none of these. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly or live in righteousness, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There's a, a very salient point here we can't miss. External activity without internal reality is valueless. God could actually care less how much religious activity you go through, how many Bible studies you attend if your heart is far from Him. The church of Ephesus, God said, hey, you guys are great, you're busy, man, you're active, but you've left your first love. And I find often that people can lose intimacy with Jesus Christ and try to make up for it with incessant activity. They busy themselves, they busy themselves with so much involvement they get so busy for the king, they forget sitting at the king's feet. And they're trying to replace that loss of intimacy and love and devotion. God says, God has shown you what is good. This is what God wants. He wants you to live righteously, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what he wants. There's a point in Scripture we've often recapped, and that is God never separates worship from the worshiper. When God looks at the worship you bring Him, the songs of praise you sing Him, the prayers you devote to Him, God just doesn't say, man, what a wonderful melody. You have such a beautiful voice. Oh, I really, I get turned on by that harmony. Oh, that chord, wow, that's awesome. I'm just, ooh, I'm into that. Now, God looks at the heart. That's what He looks at. And He never divorces the offering you give Him from the heart that you give it to Him with. Always He looks at it the same. Cain is a classic example. Cain and Abel both brought an offering to the Lord. Abel brought an animal. Cain brought some fruits of his field. God accepted Abel 
he did not respect Cain's offering, and it made Cain really angry. His countenance had fallen. And God said, Cain, why are you so bummed out? If you lived right, your offering would be accepted. Did you catch that? If you lived right, your offering would be accepted. God sees Cain, and the offering is one. It wasn't that, well, Cain had a fruit, not an animal. That wasn't it. It's that he wasn't living right. And God looked at the heart of the worshiper as well as the thing that he brought to sacrifice to God. That's why in Isaiah chapter 1, God says, don't bring these sacrifices and this incense. And when you raise your hands in worship, God says, I won't even listen to you. I won't even receive your songs. I won't even receive your praise because your heart is not right. We are often so concerned with the art of worship, God is concerned with the heart of worship. Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, Woman, there's coming a day when you're not going to worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know what? It doesn't matter if you sing loudly. And I think a, a Christian should sing with all of his heart. But there are times when you might, you might just feel, man, I just want to be quiet before the Lord tonight. You're not more spiritual if you stand up in front of people, raise your hands during a worship service. God didn't say, oh, there's a special one. More holy. Look at him, man. He's better standing up. God only looks at the heart. And we can never judge how effective worship service is by what we see outwardly. That's a mistake. It's a mistake worship leaders often make. Oh, man, the worship was great. Everybody was hooting and honanian, <laughs> clapping and dancing. There might be a stillness and a hush of holiness in the heart before God that's just as wonderful to the Lord. God sees the heart. God sees the heart. And that's what God wanted from them. The rest of the chapter speaks of God's punishment upon Israel because of sins that he delineates against. Chapter 7 is the conclusion. Now the prophet is personal. He responds out of depth of sorrow for the promises of judgment upon this land. He says, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. This guy wasn't just a prophet who gave a message of judgment and said, man, that was fun. I just loved getting down on people and causing guilt. Oh, I was stoked. <laughs> Made them shake in their boots. Loved it. His heart was touched. He was brokenhearted, overwhelmed by what would come upon the people. Even as Jesus, who wept over Jerusalem when he foresaw the judgment in 70 A.D., very much unlike Jonah, who went to Nineveh and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah loved that. God, get him. Destroy him. Wipe him out. He loved preaching that message. He was angry when God didn't judge them. He said, God, I knew it. You're a God of graciousness. I knew you'd forgive them if they'd repent. He was angry with God. But this man is touched and brokenhearted. And do you know what he's speaking of when he speaks of these grapes? There's no cluster to eat. Israel is seen as God's vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet said, Let me sing to my well-beloved a song about his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard, a very fruitful vineyard, planted on a hill. He dug around it. He put a wall to protect it. He looked for fruit. He looked for fresh grapes, but only sour grapes were produced. In other words, Israel's not producing fruit. Isaiah's mourning that. The faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. Not only then, but now. Dwight L. Moody heard a message when he was a kid and struck with him. He said, he heard this, a man said, the world has yet to see what God can do through one man totally, totally devoted to him. To find truly faithful servants. I can speak from myself as a pastor. It is difficult to find people with the same vision or just those who are just faithful, they don't want anything of themselves, no glory, no honor. They just want to serve. They're addicted to serving with no ulterior motives. It's tough to find the faithful. Micah said, the faithful man has perished 
from the earth. There's no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. In verses 3 and 4, again, the sins against leadership. The notable citizens were corrupt. In verse 5, the time was so bad. Notice how he puts it. Don't trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom, for a son dishonors father. Daughter rises against mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are men from his own house. Who quoted that? Jesus. He quoted Micah. Things were so bad that you wouldn't be able to trust anyone in the captivity. You don't know who would sell you to your enemies. That's Micah's point. Jesus quoted this. He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And from now on, houses will be divided, just like this. And a man's enemies will be from his own household. This is what will happen as you devote yourself to me. And so Micah says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. He is confessing personally the sin of the people collectively. He doesn't point the finger and say, it's their fault, they're a bunch of creeps, and I'm the only faithful one like Elijah tried to pull on God. He said, God, I'm part of it. I'm part of your people. We have blown it. We're going into captivity. I bear my part of the shame. Look at verse 14. Let's skip ahead. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. God, restore your people, he's praying. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things, is the response. The nations will see, be ashamed of all of their might. They will put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord God and shall fear because of you. Now, here's a key verse, verse 18. Who is like God, or who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Now, the name Micah means who is like Jehovah. This is a play on words of Micah's name. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, Passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from days of old. Who is like the Lord? God has been called the God of the second chance. He's God of more chances than that, man. Because I've blown it more than twice. He's the God of the 999th chance and more. He forgives. Anytime you fail, though man may point his finger at you and say, you creep, you failure, God can never use you again. Though the enemy will accuse you before God, it is God who will restore. You know God loves to restore. God delights in mercy. God delights in restoration. I think classically again, Jonah. If I'd have been God, I would have said, Jonah, you are so obstinate. There are so many other younger prophets who would love to be used. I'm going to choose one of them. They'll do it, I say. No, God wouldn't do that. He pursued Jonah until Jonah broke. And obeyed God. God's interested in restoration. God loves restoration. I have an old 1967 car that my dad bought in 69. It's kind of beat up. Has a lot of dings. It's kind of army green that's faded. And most people look at that and they go, what is that old beater? It's kind of worthless. But my dad told me how classic this car is. It's a valuable car just from, for sentimental reasons. My dad gave it to me. It was a part of my life since I, was, I learned to drive in it. I said, honey, I'd like to sell my car and with the equity just fix up this land, this old Jeep that I have, that thing that dad gave me, and just drive it. She looked at me and said, and you're nuts. It doesn't even have a heater in it. 
has no air conditioning. I mean, that's, look at the thing. I don't even know if it gets you around the block. Oh, but I could fix it up. I could restore it. Oh, man, that's so impractical. But in my mind's eye, I can picture what it's going to look like with a new paint job and that new cloth top on it, restored. It's old, man. It's a 67. But it could be restored and be a classic. And I like the whole idea of taking something that's old and restoring it. God likes that. God looks at something and the world goes, oh man, that's junk, throw it away. God says, no, I can see the finished product, what it's going to look like. I could restore, I can give that person a new paint job. I can put an overdrive in that fella. Take out the rubber seals and put in new ones. Tune up the engine. And I can use that person for my glory. Throwaways, castoffs, God can restore. Nations God can restore. Individuals God can restore. God delights in mercy. We ought to delight in mercy. We ought to delight when you see a fallen brother be picked up by God and God use him again. You shouldn't say, well, how come I'm not in that position of leadership in the church? I mean, that guy used to be a drug addict. I was never that bad, and look, I'm not worried. Hey, you ought to rejoice, man. That which is lost is found. Rejoice in the sheep that Jesus picks up tenderly and restores.